morning, Bethel. So if you would turn in your Bible to Matthew 24. It's our scripture reading for this morning. Um, Tyler's going to zero in on verse 14 in the context of the book of Matthew, but we're going to read the first 14 verses. So if you could turn to that passage, you can find it on page 829 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the Pew there. Um, And if you wouldn't mind, please stand and join me in honor of God's word. Follow along as I read. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, Bethel. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we have, for the past several months, been working our way through the book of Isaiah. Um, but as Chris alluded to a moment ago, uh, for the next three weeks, uh, we're going to be doing a series, a, a three-part series, leading up to the missions conference and the last sermon occurring during the missions conference. And so this three-part series leading up to the conference is focusing on missions in the gospel of Matthew. So this morning, today, we're focusing on, as Pastor Chris said, Matthew 24, 14, in which Jesus gives a great promise and a grand condition. He says... This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This looks ahead to the finish line, to what will and must take place prior to the return of King Jesus. But every end has a beginning. And so next Sunday, Pastor Chris is going to cover the Great Commission 
in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, there Jesus sends his disciples, and by extension us, out to the nations to make disciples of all nations. And then finally, on the Sunday during the missions conference, it's September 25th, Tom Steller will be preaching on, as we said, the parable of the talents. That's in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And there, that highlights our responsibility to faithfully steward the gifts that God has given us until Jesus returns. So today, we're looking ahead to the finish line. When after the gospel has been proclaimed as a testimony to all nations, Jesus comes back. Next week, Pastor Chris is looking back to the beginning where Jesus gives the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And then the Sunday of the missions conference, Tom Steller will address the time in between, calling for us to faithfully steward those gifts God has given us, our talents, until Jesus comes. This, Bethel, is an important three weeks for us. This missions conference is important for us. We need to be reminded of our mission. We need to be encouraged and equipped to invest our talents. We need to rest in the assured victory that Jesus promises us and labor, labor to take the gospel to the nations. This is part of our job description as Christians. This is what our Lord has tasked us to do. And we need God's help to do it. So before we turn our attention to Matthew 24, 14, let's take another moment to stop and pray. Father, we do need your help this morning. And we pray that you would give it. Lord, please unleash your word today. God, through what is said here and through what happens afterward, please work to advance your kingdom. Please work to push back the darkness. Please give us uh, a heart, a desire, a love for the gospel of the kingdom, a love for the nations, a love for you, a longing for the returning of our king. God, help us to wait for that day with much anticipation. And so work, labor to hasten the coming of our God, the coming of Jesus. So please be among us today toward those ends. Do that, God, for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom, and for the good of all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen. Promises and conditions. We're all familiar with them, aren't we? We experience them on a regular, if not a daily basis. So we've either given them ourselves or others have given them to us. So you may have told your kids something like this. Uh, I know that Whitney and I have told our kids this. You will go to the park after you clean your room. Or you may have an agreement with a service provider, like a lawn care company or a mechanic, uh, in which the agreement is that they will receive payment after services have been rendered. Or you may have heard from your employer, you will receive this bonus or this promotion or this reward or what have you after you meet these objectives. So 
promise, and reward. Uh, what's notable about these promises is that while they are real, they aren't necessarily guaranteed to happen. So the kids may not get to go to the playground. The mechanic may not receive payment if services aren't rendered. The employee may not receive the bonus. All of these things depend on whether or not the conditions are met. Matthew 24, our text for this morning, is similar to that, but it's also wonderfully different. So it's similar in the fact that there is a promise and a condition. The promise is that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations and that the end will come. This is the Lord's promise to us. This is guaranteed. But the condition is that Jesus will return only after the gospel of the kingdom has reached the nations. So Matthew 24 is similar to what we experience in that there are promises and conditions, but verse 14 is also wonderfully different in that here the promise is guaranteed to happen because the condition is guaranteed to be met. So the gospel is going to be proclaimed to all nations. It will happen. And once it does, Jesus will return. So do you see why this is good news today? Jesus in the Great Commission commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. And here, in Matthew 24, 14, he's guaranteeing not only that it's going to happen, but that once it does, the end will come. He'll come back for his people. The only question is timing. We don't know exactly when all this is going to take place. And so that leaves us, I think, this morning with two choices. So one, we can respond with laziness and apathy. We do nothing. Or at most just enough to convince ourselves that we have done our part. That's an option, but make no mistake, it's a disastrous one. It would not only potentially leave those who currently have no access to the gospel without access to the gospel, but most significantly, it would be disobedience to the Lord's command. God has commanded us to go, and so if we don't, if we're not taking the gospel to our friends, our family, our neighbors, the nations, we're being disobedient to what God's told us to do. Let's not take that lightly. But our second option is we can respond with prayerful, with loving, with confident, with urgent, hard work and zeal. We do everything in our power to reach the nations with the gospel and thus, in a sense, hasten the Lord's return. This Obedience is the only proper response to God's command. We must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the nations, longing for and looking forward to the day when King Jesus will return and he'll receive the praise he is due from people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So let's take a closer look at our text this morning and reflect on these three things. One, the message we are to proclaim. Two, the proclamation we are to make as a testimony to the nations. And three, the end. 
So our text, again, is Matthew 24, verse 14. That's on page 829 if you're using the Pew Bible. So first, the message. In chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus leaves the temple and he heads toward the Mount of Olives. This road would have provided a spectacular view of the temple complex. And apparently the disciples notice because they say, um, or they point this out to him. They point out the buildings of the temple. But Jesus' reaction, though, is somewhat surprising. He could have responded and been impressed. said, yeah, that is incredible. But he doesn't do that. His response is striking. He says in verse 2 of chapter 24, You see all these, do you not? The buildings of the temple. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples privately ask him, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And from this point on, in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus prophesies about various future events, including the destruction of the temple, which actually occurs around 40 years after this, in 70 AD, and his coming and the final judgment he'll bring. These events are all prophesied in these two chapters here. And while there's much in this text that can be debated, there's some things that are a bit unclear. One thing that does ring clear is that Jesus' primary concern isn't to give his disciples specific dates for future events. His concern is to urge his disciples to remain faithful, to endure to the end, which he says in our verse this morning, verse 14, will come once this gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. So what is the gospel of the kingdom? What exactly is this good news that we are to proclaim? Well, to understand the full weight of that phrase, we first need to know something about the kingdom of God, specifically that it refers not to a place, but to the reign, to the rule of God. So George Ladd, he was a professor of New Testament exegesis and theology. He did very helpful work here on this subject. And he pointed out in Scripture that God's kingdom, quote, always refers to his reign, his rule, his sovereignty, and not to the realm in which it is exercised. So a few texts he uses to support this include Psalm 145.11. So there the psalmist says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. These phrases being parallel phrases to one another. Speaking of the glory of your kingdom, telling of your power. Kingdom and power, they are functioning as parallel uh, or equivalent terms. Another that he gives is Psalm 145, 13. It says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Of that verse, Lad says, quote, the realm of God's rule is the heaven and earth. But this verse has no reference to the permanence of this realm. It is God's rule which is everlasting. And then finally, he mentions Matthew 6.10 in which Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of that, Lad says, quote, this prayer is a petition for God to reign, to manifest his kingly sovereignty and power to put to flight every enemy of righteousness and of his divine rule, that God alone may be king over all the world. 
So the kingdom refers to a place, or refers not to a place, but to the reign, the rule of God. Now, that doesn't fully explain the meaning here of gospel of the kingdom, but it does make it clear that the good news isn't related to a physical place, but instead somehow to God's reign. So we need a bit more context to help us out, to help us understand this phrase. At the time of Jesus' ministry, the people of Israel were under Roman rule. While they weren't slaves, they weren't exactly free either. They were looking forward to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about their deliverance, about the coming of a Messiah, a king, who would save them and conquer their enemies. So think of a text like Zechariah 9. There, the prophet foretells that God would save Israel and conquer her oppressors, that he would set her prisoners free, and that Israel's king would come to them with righteousness and salvation, that he would speak peace to the nations, and that his rule would be from sea to sea. That's really good news to a people under oppression. But there was a problem. For, for these people, for many of them, especially the religious leadership, their expectations of the coming kingdom were at best misunderstood and too weak. They expected the Messiah to come in and conquer Rome, the oppressor of God's people, set them free, and so establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness. But what they failed to realize was that Rome wasn't their biggest problem. Sin, death, and Satan were. As George Ladd says, only when death, sin, and Satan are destroyed will redeemed men know the perfect blessing of God's reign. And so Jesus, the king ushering in the kingdom, came to deal with those enemies, not Rome, but sin, death, and Satan, and deal with them he did. Jesus endured temptation from Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4. And while Satan tempted him and promised him the kingdoms of the world, if only he would worship him, Jesus endured and didn't sin. And in fact, he never sinned, not even once. He was completely righteous. Nevertheless, he was rejected by sinful man. The religious leadership of Israel refused to believe in him and eventually succeeded in having him killed. So the one who Matthew establishes as the true king of Israel in chapters 1 and 2, the son of Abraham, the son of David, Emmanuel, God with us, he is mocked as a king in chapter 27. Soldiers remove his clothes and they replace them with a scarlet robe. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they mock him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Ultimately, he's crucified on a Roman cross and laid in a tomb, dead. But three days later, God reached down and raised him from the dead in victory. And so Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, tells us, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He dealt with it. Jesus, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, delivered a death blow to death itself. 
he dealt with it. And Jesus, Paul tells us in Colossians 2.15, disarmed the rulers and authorities, demonic powers, putting them to open shame. He dealt with them. And now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, waiting until the time of his return. So Jesus waged war on his enemies on behalf of his people and so ushered in God's kingdom, God's rule and reign, but only in part. There's a future day coming when Jesus will return and bring the kingdom in in full. At that time, sin will be completely wiped out. At that time, death will forever be put away. At that time, all the Lord's enemies will be punished. Satan will finally be vanquished and peace will be forever established. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as Isaiah prophesies. And Jesus, the King, he'll receive praise from peoples of all nations. This, this message is the gospel of the kingdom. So John Piper puts it this way. This may be helpful. He says, the, the gospel of the kingdom is the good news that in Jesus, God's kingly power and authority is breaking into the world like never before. He's ruling in a new way to save his people from their sins and deliver them from their enemies and reveal his glory and establish peace and righteousness in the earth. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the message that you and I are tasked to proclaim to the nations. We're to tell them. And if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, hear this. This is for you too. We are to tell the nations God reigns. Jesus, God the Son, the King, he came to earth to save his people from their sins. He waged war on sin, death, and Satan, and he won the victory through his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. And he's even now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And one day, he's coming back to fully exercise his rule, to conquer his enemies and to dwell forever with his people. And the best news in the world is that you can be part of the kingdom by turning from your sins, trusting in Christ, and coming under his righteous rule. He's ready and willing and able to save you and give you righteousness and peace. So run to him. Trust him. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, trust him. He is a good king. His way is easy. His burden is light. Trust him. And Bethel, let's take this gospel of the kingdom and let's proclaim it to the nations. As we do so, we're like the messenger in Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the best message that we can give. If you're a Christian, you know this to be true. You were once dead in your sins, following the prince of the power of the air. But God, who's rich in mercy, 
made you alive by grace through faith in King Jesus. He delivered you from the domain of darkness and he transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. He's brought you into the kingdom. He's counted as yours, the righteousness of Christ, and he's declared you not guilty in him. You will never, you can never be condemned. You are at peace with God. There are billions of people across this planet who are still under the rule of that ancient serpent, though, who once deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. Many have heard the gospel and have yet to bow the knee to Jesus, but many are still yet to hear the good news of the kingdom. How is it going to get to them? So look with me again at Matthew 24, 14. And this is our second point, the proclamation And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the message, the gospel of the kingdom, must be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. If we take a close look at Matthew and the book of Acts, we can actually see this happening. We can witness to a degree the worldwide progression of the gospel of the kingdom. So a few references here, and you don't have to turn to any of these, but if you want to write them down and look at them later, I would encourage you to do so. So first, this is foreshadowed in Matthew chapter 1. There Jesus is identified as the son of Abraham and thus an heir to the promise of Abraham to make him a father of a multitude of nations. Second, This begins with John the Baptist in chapter 3. He's preparing the way for the Messiah and calling the people of Israel to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Third, it continues in chapter 4, verse 17, with Jesus proclaiming at the start of his ministry the same exact message that John the Baptist proclaimed. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew even describes Jesus' ministry in Galilee and cities Uh, in villages in chapter 423 and 935, and he says that Jesus was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So the gospel of the kingdom is moving, but it doesn't stop there. Fourth, in Matthew 10, verses 5 to 7, Jesus gives the disciples their marching orders. And there he tells them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. That's the same word used for nations, by the way, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Fifth, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, after his resurrection, Jesus broadens the scope and he tells his disciples to make disciples of all nations. And then in Acts, you start to see this happening the worldwide, in a sense, advancement of the gospel. So in Acts 8.12, for example, Philip goes to Samaria. Remember, Samaria is part of the area Jesus mentioned in chapter 10, telling his disciples not to go there. In Acts 8, Philip goes there. And he, quote, preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, gospel going to Samaria. And then lastly, The book of Acts ends in chapter 28. Paul is in Rome, and Acts ends with these two verses. He, that's Paul, 
lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The gospel of the kingdom unleashed without hindrance going forth throughout the world. So the gospel did, in a sense, reach the nations. What began in Jerusalem and Judea made it to Samaria and eventually to Rome to the ends of the earth. So why then has Jesus not returned? Well, I think the answer to that's pretty simple. It's because the appointed time hasn't yet been reached. It's because the mission to make disciples of all nations isn't yet complete. It's not finished. So listen to some troubling stats here about our world today. One website, peoplegroups.org, tracks the advancement of the gospel throughout the world by considering not literally nations, but people groups, which that's what the term nations in Matthew 24, 14 may signify. And it specifically focuses on those people groups who are yet unreached and unengaged. So here's how the site defines these terms. A people group is an ethno-linguistic group with a common self-identity that is shared by the various members. For strategic purposes, it is the largest group within which the gospel can spread without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. An unreached people group is one in which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians able to engage this people group with church planning. Technically speaking, the percentage of evangelical Christians in this group is less than 2%. And then an unengaged people group is one in which there is no church planning strategy consistent with evangelical faith and practice underway. Now, here's how this breaks down. According to the site, there are 11,499 people groups in the world. That accounts for around 7.3 billion people. That's everybody on our planet right now, around 7.3 billion people. Of these people groups, 6,804 are unreached. That accounts for 4.2 billion people. And 3,043 are unengaged. Unengaged people groups, that's around 197 million people. These numbers represent billions of people in our world today who are lost, who are still under the domain of darkness. And unless the gospel gets to them, unless we take it to them, unless they turn from their sins and come under the kingdom, the reign of Jesus, they're on their way to an eternity apart from God in hell. That has to stagger us. So what are we supposed to do? How should we respond to that? I think four things. One, we need to heed Jesus' words in Matthew 9, 38. He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We need more people taking the gospel to the nations. So let's pray. Let's pray and ask God to do it. Two, 
we need to pray for and support those who are called to go. I think it's encouraging that here at Bethel, we're doing that. Two of the missionaries we support, and I got, I got permission from uh, Greg Lewis to share this. Two of the missionaries we support, Greg and Karen Lewis with AIM International, uh, recently shared some encouraging news. So Greg sent an email, and he shared two stories. And I'm, I'm just going to read these, just going to read what he said. So he says, Back in 2007, when we lived in Uganda, Karen organized a small team of Ugandans, Congolese, and a New Zealander and an American to make a visit to the unreached Maboro. These people are cattle herders and have been slowly migrating through Central African Republic. The team met up with a local CAR missionary and together spent about a week with the Mabaro. They discovered they numbered eight to 10,000 in the area and Ames should consider sending a team there. After lots of plans, many postponements, and a long period of unrest in the country, the couple that will lead the team arrived in Zimeo, CAR, yesterday. The others are scheduled to arrive in January. That's an unreached people group getting reached by a missionary we support, like by, by the organization they work for. Second story. In 1975, a Wycliffe Bible translator did a survey of the languages of southern Sudan. When he got to the isolated Laaram, one of their representatives said, we need medical help and agriculture advice, someone to write our language and teach us how to read. We don't care who comes, and we are willing to believe what they teach us if only they will come and help us. That was 1975. Sudan then went through 20 years of civil war, and nothing more was done until 2005 when AIM when AIM people made another visit. When they arrived, the, La the Laaram leaders said, it doesn't matter who you are, come and help us, and we need you to teach us the word of God. Over this past weekend, the final members of a team of 12 arrived to start work in several Laaram villages. <sighs> That's awesome. That is awesome. You know, when I originally looked at, and I don't know if this is related, this is pure speculation on my part, it could be mere chance, but when I looked at that website, uh, peoplegroups.org, um, I looked at it earlier in the week, and the number of um, unengaged people groups was 3,043. When I looked at it last night, or I'm sorry, it was 3,046 the other day. When I looked at it last night, it was 3,043. Pure speculation on my part, but we've got two people, or we've got some people going to two of those groups. It's amazing. The gospel is going forth. The gospel is advancing throughout the world. So let's continue in the good work of praying for and supporting our missionaries who go. And so three, we need to faithfully share the gospel here in Wilmington and look out for unreached and unengaged peoples in our midst. So unreached and unengaged peoples are located in specific regions throughout the world, but as we all know, people move. People migrate. People have to flee areas. They have to go to areas of refuge, refugees. So we are 
centrally located, in a sense right here in Wilmington, there are a number of unreached people groups around the D.C. area and around New York City. I don't know how many are here in Wilmington, how many people representing these unreached people groups there are, but there may be some. So let's be on the lookout and let's be intentional to preach, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom everywhere we go in all our spheres of influence. And you know, one site, it's called joshuaproject.net, it does actually list one unreached people group that's right here in Wilmington. They label them the South Asian Bengali-speaking group. So we can, to a degree, be part of this mission here. So we need to faithfully be proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then lastly, four, we need to go to unreached and unengaged peoples. Paul in Romans 10, 14 to 15, and this might sound familiar because he's picking up that verse that we read in Isaiah 52. Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are to they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Maybe God is calling some of us to spend our lives for this cause. Adults, if that is you, be willing to leave the comforts of America and go. Parents, if that's your children, and I, and I know this is hard, if that's your children, be willing to send them. Students, if you think that might be you, be diligent to seek the Lord's will and continue the conversation with your mom and dad and with your church leaders. Let's take comfort and find motivation in the fact that as the gospel of the kingdom goes forth, we are in a sense, and this is point three, hastening the Lord's return, the Lord's return, the end. So this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is clear in this verse that the gospel is going to be proclaimed to all nations, and that once that task is completed, he will return. That's really good news. But let's be clear. Jesus' return is only good news for those who love the gospel. Jesus' return is only good news for those who, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, love the Lord's appearing. So before God saved me, when I was little, I remember lying awake one night and trying to convince myself that Jesus was coming back that very night. That may sound holy, but trust me, it wasn't. I was doing that because I thought that since no one knows the day or the hour of the Lord's return, if I convinced myself that it was happening that night, it wouldn't happen. So I was doing my very best efforts to try to prevent the return of Jesus. I remember, too, uh, one night waking up, it was the middle of the night, and hearing a train whistle blow near my house. Now, remember, it cut me a little bit of slack. It was the middle of the night. Um, but I didn't think it was a train whistle. I thought 
It was the trumpet announcing the Lord's return. And so I hopped out of bed and I like, sprinted to my parents' room to see if they were still there, to see if I got left. I was terrified. Like, I was absolutely terrified. And how absurd is this? Oh my goodness, just a- absolutely absurd. At the time, I certainly didn't love the Lord's appearing. I was scared to death. I didn't want him to come back. I even made, as, you, as you've seen, ridiculous efforts to try and stop it. But now that I'm a Christian, now that God has saved me, the return of Jesus is sweet. And if you're a Christian, I'm sure it's sweet to you too. And this is important because our love for God, our longing for Jesus' return, will motivate us to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom when the going gets tough. And it will get tough. Jesus promises us nothing less. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom is risky. Think about it. So earlier, mentioned a number of characters, a number of people in Matthew. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod Antipas, and later he had his head cut off at a young girl's birthday party. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was beaten, and he was crucified, killed. Jesus promised his disciples that they would face persecution. He told them in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus promised that persecution was coming. And Jesus here, in Matthew 24, verses 9 to 14, he uses language that's really similar to the language in Matthew 10 uh, to speak to his disciples. So he's promising persecution. So look with me here again in Matthew 24, starting at verse 9. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this endeavor to take the gospel to the nations, it will, it will involve persecution and death. We will be hated by all nations. Some of us may be betrayed. Some of us might even die. David Platt puts it this way. He says, Satan must have Matthew 24, 14 plastered all over the walls of hell. Because this verse is a reminder to the devil and all his minions that once every people group on the planet has been reached with the gospel, the end will come. And the end is not good news for them. The end is bad news for them. What that means is that Satan is dead set against the people of God reaching the peoples of the world with the gospel. When we decide to intentionally engage unreached people groups with the gospel, we can expect to be met with the might of hell. 
Divisions within us, distractions around us, deceptions tempting us, disease and death threatening us. Satan doesn't want the end to come. The question is, do we? Well, do we? Let's be sure to keep our eyes on Jesus, to ask God to make us love him more and more. Because while Jesus' return may be sweet to us, we all have moments where our desires are misplaced. We desperately need God's help to keep us faithful. And the good news for us as Christians is that God has promised to do just that, to finish the good work that he started in us to keep us faithful to the very end. So let's pray and ask him to do what he's promised. Let's fix our eyes on him so that when the heat gets turned up, we stay close. So that when persecution comes, we don't take the easy route. So that when we're tempted to love the things of the world, our eyes are set on Jesus. Our affections are in the right place. So Jesus, though, he'll keep us faithful to the very end. This is a promise that we can rest assured in. And until that day comes, let's be diligent to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to all nations, looking forward to the day when King Jesus will return. He'll fully perfect his, his people. Death will be no more. Jesus will wipe away our tears. He'll judge his enemies. He'll establish peace and righteousness. What John describes in Revelation 7, 9 to 10 will be realized. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. God, we desperately need your help. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would give us deep affection for Christ, deep love for the gospel of the kingdom, a deep longing to see Jesus return and usher in the kingdom, the reign of God in full. God, keep our hearts turned toward you. Keep our eyes fixed on you. We so very much need your help. And so God, as you do that, help us to be proclaimers, joyful, bold, urgent proclaimers of the gospel of the kingdom. Do this among us, God, for your glory and the good of the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.